Yeah, Numbers uh, beginning in uh, verse cha- uh, in chapter 20, beginning at verse 22, and going through into ch- uh, chapter 21, finishing at verse 9, beginning with the death of Aaron. The whole Israelite community set out from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. At Mount Hor, near the border of Edom, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will not enter the land I give the Israelites because both of you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Call Aaron and his son Eleazar and take them up Mount Hor. Remove Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eleazar. For Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded. They went up Mount Hor in the sight of the whole community. Moses removed Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eleazar. And Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. And then the whole community learned that Aaron had died. All the Israelites mourned him for thirty days. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord, If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns, so that the place was called Hormah. They travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go round Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then, when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Thanks, John. Well, good evening, all. Uh, Great to be with you tonight as um, we come to our last in our little series. The book of Numbers is quite long. It goes on to chapter 35, so we're taking a break, and perhaps, God willing, we might come back to it in the future. Um, But let's uh, pray as we come to... Quite a large chunk, 18 to 21, but we're going to be focusing in on that last little story tonight. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, as we think of those familiar words, we pray now that as we look at this passage, it would help us to be people who are conscious of wanting to build your kingdom people who are conscious of wanting to do your will this week. So please, would you encourage us from this passage? Please rebuke us and challenge us where we need it. And please show us just how wonderful our Saviour is. And we ask this for the glory of his name. Amen. 
Great. Well, um, each time I've been preaching through numbers, we've come back to this slide. I'm deliberately repeating it to try and help us to remember, um, because that's exactly what God's people didn't do. They didn't remember. So you'll know this slide. The book of Numbers talks about the people of God wandering in the desert, grumbling, wasting time. And the two sort of big things we've looked at each week in the book of Numbers. Firstly, it acts like a kind of mirror held up in front of us. And as we see the um, repeated mistake that the people of God made, it's meant to force us to think, Lord, protect me from making the same mistake. And then the other big thing we're seeing in the book of Numbers is the amazing faithfulness of God, that in the context of grumbling and wasted time and sin, God remains brilliantly, wonderfully faithful. And so it's a book of encouragement. Um, So just to whiz through where we've been, remember the first four chapters, I called it counting and coordination. God's people were counted when they were rescued from Egypt. And that mattered because every single one of those people who was brought out of slavery in Egypt mattered to God. Just like every person who's gathered here tonight matters to God. You matter to God tonight. Make sure you know that. You matter to him. And then the people who matter to God, who were gathered, accounted, and then coordinated. Why? Because the people of God were meant to revolve around him. And you see that in the picture there. The tabernacle representing where God's presence was amongst his people, at the center of his people. They were counted, they were coordinated. Then in chapters 5 to 6, we thought about holiness, didn't we? And we were thinking about the fact that holiness is not just some arbitrary thing that God calls us to, but is ultimately there to facilitate relationship with him. Be holy because I am holy says the Lord. Now then we were thinking about obedience in chapter 7 to 8, and these were the images I put up on the screen. Images of a broken world cast into chaos. Why does God call us to be obedient? Because when we're not, chaos ensues. And we see chaos all around us in our world because our world is godless. Then we came to chapters 9 to 12, grumbling and grace. Do you remember Nathan took us through? Grumbling is not a kind of respectable sin. Actually, it's massively destructive In a spiritual sense, it's lethal. And so he suggested perhaps it should be added to the list of the seven deadly sins. And I hope we perhaps would agree. Grumbling is serious. We need God's grace. And then Neil took on last week with chapters 13 to 17, the the danger of rebellion, revolt. The danger of rebellion is it forces us or causes us not to trust in the promises of God. And it causes us to deliberately disobey and we call out to him for mercy. And so off the back of that kind of series and where we've come to, uh, we're coming now to a large portion, 18 to 21. Of course, we're not going to look at it all, but what I wanted to do is just to flick through a few key verses. We're going to focus in on chapter 21, but if you've got your Bible there, come back to chapter 18, and I want us to focus in with you on some of the key verses that we perhaps could have looked at, just so you can see how we get from where we were left off last week um, through to the passage we're looking at today. So um, bear with me and we'll just flick through a few verses. Do you see there back in chapter 18 verse 6 that the priests were reminded were given by God, set apart as a gift dedicated to the Lord to um, look after the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. So here you have the priest that God sets apart, one tribe as it were, set apart to facilitate the worship of God. Chapter 18 verse 6. On the other side, then, you get to verse 21. You have a tithe. The rest of God's people were to tithe, to give a proportion of all that they had to support the work of the priests. So, again, enable worship to take place. You'll see in chapter 19, verse 20, that we're reminded again that being spiritually clean, having a heart that is clean before the Lord, really, really matters. Uh, do you see there in verse 20? 
If those who are unclean do not purify themselves, they must be cut off from the community because they have defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. It's a reminder again and again that the people of God who are imperfect can't just walk into the presence of a holy God. Hence the work of the priests on their behalf. Then you move into chapter 20 and we see this really sad grumbling. The grumbling that kind of began in chapter 11 and has continued all the way through. The grumbling continues. And just let me read from 2 to 5 of chapter 20. And as, as I read it, remember where they've come from. Slavery in Egypt. And they say, chapter 20 verse 2. Now there was no water for the community and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness? <laughs> why, why are we here, they're saying. You're here because you've been rescued from Egypt and you're heading to the promised land. The reason you're in the wilderness is because you're disobedient. And yet they've got the audacity to blame Moses and even blame God for their plight. And then he goes on. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to this terrible place? As if Egypt had been this wonderful place. There were slaves there. But they forgot where they'd come from and they grumbled. This place has no grain or figs, grapefruit, pomegranate. There's no water to drink. And so the grumbling continues. And then you come into chapter 21, just before the little passage we're going to focus in on, on, on the bronze snake. And you see that the grumbling continues. Why, verse 5, have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Now, why is all that really significant? All the way through the book of Leviticus and into the book of Numbers, there's this whole sacrificial system that's been set up to facilitate worship with God. Uh, And the priests have been established, the priesthood, to enable this worship to take place, that God's people can be cleansed before him. And despite all of this, despite this system of purity that's been put in place, the problem is it doesn't actually deal with the heart of the problem. Because the heart of the problem is the human heart. And it didn't matter how perfect the sacrificial system could have been and how well the priests performed their duty. God's people still had hearts of disobedience. One final verse to look at. If you were to jump all the way through to chapter 32, if we were to continue in our series, we'd see time and time again this kind of grumbling continuing. Why is this grumbling so serious? Why was Nathan spot on when he helped us to understand that? Chapter 32, verse 13. It's also on the screen. The Lord's anger burned against Israel and he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the whole generation of those who had done evil in his sight was gone. That's a pretty chilling verse, isn't it? A whole generation died in the wilderness ultimately because of the state of their heart. And so actually the state of our heart really, really matters to God. And it's in light of that that we turn just to this very short passage in Numbers chapter 21, to this well-known passage of the bronze snake. And what you see in this passage is a little picture of the gospel illustrated in the diagram behind me on the screen. And this kind of pattern is a pattern you'll see all the way through the Bible, and you might recognize it. The pattern goes like this. God's people, you and I, we rebel against him. We say no to God, we do things our own way. It leads to judgment, God acting in right judgment against the wrongdoing, acting in love. That judgment then calls us to repent, to own our sin and to recognize that our rebellion is serious. As we call out out to God for that forgiveness, he offers us salvation, that incredible gift of life that we don't deserve. But a gift that's held out to us has to be received. 
salvation received. And then so the pattern continues. And we're just going to look at this pattern for that little short story about the bronze snake. Because we see this pattern continued here. And it's a picture we'll see of the gospel. So let's start with the first one, rebellion. I hope we've seen through um, the book of Numbers that grumbling is ultimately uh, rooted in forgetting. How easy is it for us as Christians to forget how good God is? Uh, isn't it wonderful encouragement from Jackie with 24-7 prayer? Don't just come with a list of petitions, as important as that is, but come with thankful hearts. I think it's why the Lord's Prayer is such a wonderful um, kind of tonic and, and help for us because of the state of our grumbling. Why? Because when Jesus gives us this model prayer, what does he start with? He starts with pointing us away from ourselves, that natural grumbling to who he is. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, special is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. How often do our prayers not start with who God is, but start with who we are? That's why this prayer is so wonderful. It then goes on to talk about, Lord, give us today our daily bread. Lord, you are the great sustainer and provider. I need to acknowledge that in my prayer. How often do I grumble because I forget that every good thing I have comes from the hand of God, and I forget it. And so I grumble, and I suspect you would too. Then we're taught to ask God to forgive us our sin, to recognize that we so quickly grumble. And then to grow that heart within us that enables us to forgive others. And then this great prayer, Lord, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. Why? Because in a sense, the root of our grumbling, the root of a a broken heart is the work of Satan calling us away from him. And so we see, and I'm sure we can understand that rebellion is really serious and it goes all the way through the Bible and it always starts off this cycle. But after rebellion comes judgment. And do you see how judgment comes in verse 6? The Lord sent venomous snakes. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these snakes in the wild in Africa or somewhere else. They're pretty nasty and you won't want to come anywhere near them. And they bit the people and many of the Israelites died. I think there's much more going on here than snakes being some kind of arbitrary punishment. Don't think of God sort of sitting in heaven and seeing his people grumbling and going, ah, well, they deserve punishment. Now, what would be a fitting punishment right now? Well, they're kind of in the desert and it's hot and what nasty things are in the desert? Snakes. I know what I'll send snakes. I think there's a lot more going on. Uh, Remember where the people of God have come from. They've come from Egypt. And in Egypt, the snake was a very powerful symbol. In fact, if you were to look at the kind of headdress, the crown that the pharaohs wore, you might make out on the top there the picture of the head of a cobra, a powerful snake. It's a symbol of power, but it's a reminder of oppressive power because it was the oppression of the Egyptian power that led to God's people being in slavery for 400 years. And perhaps in part at least, this judgment that God sent upon them was trying to challenge them about how misjudged they were in verse 5 to say Lord in my grumbling I wish we could go back to Egypt because that was a place of oppressive power not under the rule of God but under the rule of a foreign superpower second reason perhaps for the snakes think right back at the very beginning of the Bible this first snake or serpent that we're introduced to the devil And all of the grumbling and all of the wrongdoing of the human heart ultimately rooted in his work. And so when God here sends snakes, venomous snakes, into the desert, I don't think it's some arbitrary punishment. Let's just choose a snake. 
Actually, it's a reminder to them of where they've come from. And perhaps also a reminder of the ultimate root of all sin, the snake or the serpent in the garden. And so judgment is God's way of acting in love to show you and I the consequences of our rebellion against God. Now, we all experience brokenness in our world uh, at different times and in different ways. But if you were to watch the news and your heart breaks for some of the things you see on the news, or maybe you're going through a situation in life that is a result of the brokenness of the world, often there's a sense not an explanation for it, but perhaps at least in part, part of the reason that God allows us in his love to experience the heartbreak of a broken world is at least in part to remind us where rebellion against God takes us. And as we live with the consequences of a broken world, part of that is to point us back to him. Because there wouldn't be any brokenness in the world if our hearts were right with God. And so suffering, as intense and difficult as it can be, and I don't want to be in any sense flippant with this comment, suffering can sometimes be a means of God's grace. Just to remind us of the state of our own hearts and how much we need him. And so... The rebellion of God's people that leads to judgment, not just arbitrary judgment, but very powerful symbolic judgment, then leads, we see, to repentance. Do you see there, verse 7? The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord would take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. I think one of the things that this verse teaches us about repentance is that repentance isn't in a sense kind of muttering over our shoulders a kind of a kind of sorry rather like a small child might mutter sorry when their parents sits them down and says apologize to your brother or your sister you know how it goes a sort of sorry and your hands are in your pocket you don't really want to say it actually repentance here you see is illustrated as you and I owning our sin almost being able to call it out to name it and say that is what I have done and that's exactly what they do here. It's interesting that in verse 6 we read of the venomous snakes. If you were to translate that more literally, it would be fiery ones. Perhaps because of the color of them, we don't know. But more probable because the sting of their bite caused great pain. But is it not true that until we feel the sting of sin, we're never going to see our need for a saviour? We have to feel the sting of sin. We have to see where life takes us when we rebel against God. To feel the consequences of our sin, which we all feel in a broken world. Because otherwise our saviour is not a saviour, is he? He's perhaps just a friend. But what you see here in the people of God who repent is an acknowledgement of deep, deep offence towards God. An acknowledgement we've sinned against you. And we've rebelled also against the person you've placed over us in leadership, Moses. I think that's perhaps why the Bible calls us to sometimes pray for each other and with each other. And to pray specifically for our hearts to be guarded against complacency. I know sometimes after service, for instance, we might encourage us to gather in small groups to pray. And I know that for some that's difficult. Sometimes that's a function maybe of not being used to it. Uh, Maybe for some uh, it's more difficult with particular personalities. I understand that. But maybe we've got to try harder at overcoming a barrier that is a barrier for many of us. Because interestingly, the Bible commands us to pray together. And interestingly as well, in James chapter 5, verse 16, we're told this. It's a command. Confess your sins to each other. 
It's an interesting verse, isn't it? I thought I confessed my sins to God. Well, I do, because he's the only one who can forgive me. But why does James teach us to also confess sin to each other? There's something very powerful, isn't there? A great display of humility and being able to, where appropriate, name the sin of my heart and the battle of my heart before another Christian brother or sister whom I trust. And then in the the safety of a small group, perhaps, saying, you know, I'm really struggling with this. And in my prayer, I confess what's gone on in my heart. We're not good at it. We might be better at asking for forgiveness from God. And of course, we must do that because he's the only one who can forgive. But it's worth reflecting on why James says confess your sins to each other. Because naturally, we don't want to. Naturally, I wouldn't want to expose to another the state of my heart. And of course, there's appropriate boundaries and we need to be sensible about this but perhaps we can learn from the people here who in a sense would do this they would confess their sins to each other as much as they would to the living God repentance is about owning our sin and feeling the power of the sting of sin that we might look to our wonderful savior and rejoice in him and then of course following repentance we see as the cycle continues God in his lavish, generous, selfless, giving love offers us salvation. Do you see it there in verse 8? The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. It's interesting, this bronze snake that was raised up on a pole was not some kind of lucky charm. Kind of look at the lucky charm and it will make you better. And yet the really frightening thing is, if you read on in your Bible, don't feel you have to turn to it, but if you read on to 2 Kings chapter 18, let me just read exactly what God's people ended up doing with this bronze snake. Verse 4. And this wasn't what God intended. Uh, It's talking about the king. Uh, a good king who broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it frightening isn't it the first time here we learn about this bronze snake the bronze snake is not some magic charm or amulet a bit like this this is a an amulet or a bronze um, a depiction of the bronze snake that has been found in excavations This bronze snake up on a pole was not some lucky charm. You've been bitten by a venomous snake, you're going to die. Pray to this lucky charm and it will make you better. Why did God say, raise up this bronze snake on a stick? It was this idea that the very act of looking up to God was an act of looking to him for the salvation that was only possible in him. One of the things I love about God is that when he offers us salvation, he's not pointing ultimately to a solution More than that, he's wonderfully pointing to himself. What does Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Don't get fixed over there. Come to me, and I will fix you. When God offers us salvation in Christ, he's not pointing us away to a solution away from himself. He's pointing us to himself. Because our forgiveness in Christ isn't a kind of of get-out-of-jail, cut-free card like you'd have in a game of Monopoly. It's not kind of getting a passport that I might get to heaven. The purpose of salvation that God holds out to us is, as we've seen, to foster that relationship with him. So salvation is offered. It's interesting, isn't it, that this... Anyone know what that symbol is? Paramedics? It's interesting, isn't it? If you have an accident and you call 999, probably the first people to respond are the paramedics. 
And in that moment of helplessness, when you may be lying on the floor after an accident, who do you look to? You look to the paramedic who's able to help you. And so the paramedics have taken on this image of the bronze snake. It's interesting, isn't it? Salvation offered, ultimately salvation, not just that we might be forgiven, but offered that we might have a relationship fostered with the living God. And then we see in verse 9, salvation received. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. See, what's the significance of looking to the bronze snake? The bronze snake is a depiction of the very things that were killing God's people. It was a symbol of death. All around them, there were people who were being bitten and lying on the floor, writhing around in agony and dying. But this snake was caused, um, God's people were called to lift up this snake on a pole. Because as they looked at the snake, they would recognize it's this snake that is causing our death. And why are there snakes here? In judgment, because we've rebelled against God. So looking to the snake was a way of saying, we're in this place, in this plight, because we've rejected him. And yet all around, their heads are down, looking at their fellow people dying, and they're caused to look up. It's why the snake was put up on a pole. So in the camp, everybody could see it. And they lifted their eyes. And who are they looking to for salvation? They're looking to God. I think it's really interesting that God's people, verse 7, do you see it there? They asked for the snakes to be taken away. And in our story, the snakes weren't taken away. The reality is we live in a broken world and the sting of sin isn't taken away. Not now. We still experience our sin. And yet it's in the midst of that that God in his love provides a solution in Jesus. It's wonderful, isn't it? Because he meets us in the brokenness of our world. He meets us just where we're at. And he meets us with the love of a wonderful saviour. Now if you look at our little cycle, there are two areas of that cycle that in a sense require response from us. The first is that of repentance, owning our sin, feeling the sting of sin and actually confessing it and coming back to God. The second one that requires our response is that when salvation, this incredible gift of life is offered to us, will we receive it? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling well, there's one verse in the book of Isaiah and in many ways sums up the situation here in Numbers. Isaiah 45, verse 22, where God calls out and he says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am the God and there is no other. Here's two little questions to reflect on. First one, do you believe that? That the living God is God and there is no other. I hope you believe that. But perhaps the more important question then on the follow-up is, Asking yourself, well, how does that truth shape the way that I live? Because in the wilderness, when God's people were being bitten by these snakes and they were desperate and had no hope, there was only one place to turn, wasn't there? And it was to the living God who could forgive them. And on the 14th of April, 2019, here in Long Crendon, when we consider the state of our hearts that so naturally turn away from God to do our own thing, there is only one place to turn. And it's the living God. I think it's really interesting. When you read this story of the bronze snake, it falls sandwiched between two stories of victory, which taken together remind us that salvation is all of God. And wonderfully, as we move into the New Testament, the Apostle John 
recalls this story, which he would have known from the Hebrew scriptures. He recalls this story, and he recognizes that in this little story of the bronze snake, in the desert, in the wilderness, there is a wonderful little picture of the gospel. And so I'm going to ask John from upstairs to read to us from John chapter 3, and do turn to it if you have your Bible in front of you. Thanks, John. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It's a very famous passage, isn't it? It contains probably the most famous verse in the whole Bible. It's the first verse that I ever learned as a little boy, John 3.16. I suspect you're the same. And it's a wonderful verse, John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved the world. There's two words that can be translated world from the Greek. One is a word that talks about extent, kind of all people. The other is a word that speaks of the world and its brokenness. And here in John 3.16, the word is the word associated with the world and its brokenness. For God so loved the world. He loved the world whilst it was broken that he sent his one and only son. And in this little dialogue, Jesus is talking to a Pharisee, a religious leader called Nicodemus. And it's a puzzling passage, isn't it? He's talking about one thing, and it's really the theme of John's gospel. He's talking about life. Isn't it interesting, therefore, that in the context of this dialogue with the religious leader talking about life, that John would recall another story in the Old Testament, the story we're looking at tonight, which is all about life. 
Just notice two things. There's all, all sorts of parallels we could draw, but just notice two things as we close. Notice verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man, a description of Jesus, must be lifted up. In Numbers, the snake was lifted up on a pole. And why were the snakes sent in the first place? They were sent because of sin. And the snakes led to death. And just as the snakes were lifted up in the desert, so the Son of Man on that first Good Friday was lifted up. And why was Jesus sent into the world? For sin. And what did it lead him to? His death. But then notice the second thing. Notice how it reading goes on. That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Just as God's people looked to the snake in the desert and it brought life to a situation where there was desperation and death. So when you and I look to our Savior hanging on a cross, it brings life when otherwise there would just be desperation and death. And so as we come to a close, remember those two things in a sense that the book of Numbers is all about. The book of Numbers acts like a mirror held up in front of us that we might look at our own hearts and as we see the mistakes that God's people made time and time and time again and we ask, why read 35 chapters of this? It's depressing. There's a lot of chapters to remind us that this cycle of rebellion continues in all of our hearts and it's there to act like a mirror to remind us and to pray for the mercy of God that we would not make the same mistakes that God's people made. But of course, as well as the mirror, the book of Numbers is a wonderfully encouraging book, isn't it? Because it's a book of life, a book that teaches us about the faithfulness of God, that in our place of rebellion and grumbling, God wonderfully meets us with his faithfulness and forgiveness. And that's why John three sixteen and 17 are such wonderful words. So let's close on them again. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life god didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him what a savior and what a week to think about these things as we prepare to celebrate easter